What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. Usually, we just make up information, uh, but today we actually got some experts, and uh, they're going to let us know why we can still use fossil fuels and continue farting into the wind. Uh, we've said for a long time that the liberals are trying to put corks up our assholes, uh, remove fossil fuels, and make sure that we can remain economically productive. So let's welcome to the show our expert to, for today, Andy and Donnie. What's going on, Rob? Glad to be called an expert. Happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not so much for me. Uh, I, I will mention right off the top that I uh, do the podcast for Heartland on every Friday in the Tank Podcast. Sorry for the shameless plug right off the top. Uh, so my job basically is to just read and talk about different reports and studies and articles from think tanks across the country that deal with this stuff. So you're getting a lot of secondhand knowledge from me. Let me be honest here. I'm not, I'm not the scientist uh, in the field uh, doing the measurements or anything like that. I just read about them. No, that's okay, because that's actually why I wanted to have you here today, is I'm pretty sick of reading. So if I can just become a source of third-hand knowledge from the guy getting the secondhand knowledge, we're going to be doing okay. <laughs> uh, that's perfect. Uh, and on that note, so I was curious to know, you know, every time I do a podcast, people always ask me, like, how do you how do you become a comedian? And the answer is I thought it was interesting. About 10 years ago, I started just showing up to open mics. I'm still waiting to actually get paid for that. So I'm curious to know, think tank circuit. Do you just show up to like rich people's parties, start just ranting about opinions and someone goes, I like that. I want to give you money for it. How does that become like a job you actually get? Uh, well, I'll start off with me here. So I, uh, I, this was like a, a realm that I wanted to get in ever since I got into the idea of libertarianism. The idea of like a think tank I thought was really cool. Uh, get to just spend all day thinking about these ideas or whatever. And I really didn't even know what a think tank was or what they did until I got here. But so I had a friend that uh, recommended me to try a uh, internship here at the Heartland Institute, which I did and I got it. And uh, basically, it was like a 10-week thing. And my mission during those 10 weeks was basically to pick up as many responsibilities as I could so that when my 10 weeks expired, they couldn't just get rid of me. And it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Personally, I thought that it had something to do with tanks. Turns out it's actually more just thinking the tank end was a total farce. But uh, no, I I got really into the climate issue, which is what we're obviously talking about today. And... um, Yeah, so that kind of drove me to the Heartland Institute, which is, I would say, one of the most predominant uh, think tanks out there for non-climate alarmism. But and here I am as the you know the third-hand knowledge. That's right. Love it. So actually, before we get into the global warming stuff, I I do want to talk a little bit about that strategy of just showing up and trying to take on uh, responsibility. I had an internship uh, at a hedge fund, like maybe my second year of college, and this guy told me as a job strategy, he goes. Just figure out the job you want and just start showing up there and making yourself useful. At some point, you're going to need to hire someone and you're just going to be the guy who's there. And (laughs) I've seen people get jobs that way. When he said it to me, I was like, that sounds insane. Um, But most people, I think when we have jobs, we try and do as little work as possible because that's just kind of – it's almost like, I don't know, for me being a slacker in school, it just kind of carries over where (laughs) you feel like you're winning if you're doing as little as possible, especially if you're being paid – Um, but I always like to hear when people actually show up to a company, they create value and it works out for them. Um, so that's a good win from you. I'd love to hear like a little bit more about how you actually like showed up and implemented that. Cause I do think that that is the way to kind of get ahead at your job is that most people don't want to work. So they just don't do much. But like, if you really kind of create value, people do realize that I do live my life that way. So I'd love to hear a little bit about from you in terms of you actually implemented that. Sure, yeah. I've got a couple of different examples. Uh, uh, the biggest and shiny one would be the podcast that I do that I already referenced. I won't even say the name. Uh, and uh, basically, I'm, I'm a me and a sales guy, s- and I, I almost like, I, I smile every time someone else is like, I'm just going to sell this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so uh, me and a co-worker of mine uh, were like, hey, why don't, we, why don't we do a podcast? Nobody asked us to. My, my boss didn't uh, ask me to do it or anything. We're just like, you know what? Let's do a podcast. Uh, we'll do it every Friday or whatever. And, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll just ignore it or whatever. And that's what we did. And now I'm 215 episodes in, have been doing it for, what, four years now, which is kind of crazy if I do the math. Uh, so that that's one example. Uh, another one is that like uh, me and uh, my my uh, coworker Justin Haskins, who's kind of on the scene when it comes to socialism stuff. You'll see him on like Fox News or whatever. 
we constantly have like side projects that we're uh, doing, whether it's like a website. We, we launched Crazy Things Liberals Say, which we don't actually add too much onto it. It's kind of floundering a little bit. Mm. But we also started this like little socialism thing. He wrote this book. We were trying to get it out there. Uh, once we actually got some type of level of like uh, interest out there, we pitched it to the president of the Heartland Institute who wanted to make it a, a project of the Heartland Institute. So now me and Justin kind of coordinate the Stopping Socialism project here at the Heartland Institute, and that has grown to basically people flying us around the country to do talks about it at different places and conferences. So those are probably my two best examples of that, uh, but That's yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, got another but, uh, random question for you. As a dude who just, you know, you, you you work at a think tank, which means you actually have the hours to sit down and study stuff, and you're being paid for it, which is, right. it's going to make you more of an expert on random topics than even a guy like myself that I want to follow the news, but I really only have so many hours in my day to really sit down and research stuff. I was working on a, a joke premise a little while ago, because I've confronted this, that, you know, if you're just at a random party or you're talking to random individuals, and they hit on a topic that you've actually researched and know a bunch about, there's nothing more annoying than to, to people who aren't that well-educated and they want to just have an opinion, and then they realize, oh, I'm confronting someone who's actually done some... Like, and that's, that's mostly just a turn-off socially, is when you can go, oh, well, I actually studied this, and everyone's like, oh, well, fuck, we were just... We were trying to bullshit over here, do you mind? <laughs> right. So I'm curious, for you, I, the way I handle it is I mostly just choose not to debate people. I just go, all right, that's an interesting point of view. Let's go back to talking about UFC. Uh, so I'm curious to know what your approach is on that. Cause you're, you're definitely more informed almost any time, probably a, to a random topic comes up. Well, it, it kind of depends. So there's different topics. We, we at the Heartland Institute, we cover like four main topics, I guess five, if you want to count socialism. Um, some of them are a little over my head, to be honest. So, you know, like I can, I can with, I, I could do a talk. Uh, I can speak at length about climate change stuff, which we're going, we're going to do. I could speak at length about socialism stuff. Um, healthcare. I, it's a little touch and go with me. Education is a little wonky with me, and I know the generalities. So sometimes when people are pitching this idea of like you know teachers are underpaid or something, then maybe I'll throw in some lines or whatever. But I'm not going to start like reading from the encyclopedia or anything like that. So that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of my right. go to. I was thinking about this with the teachers are underpaid thing. Is that if you feel like your teacher was underpaid, you also have to realize that if if teachers were better paid, every teacher that you had through your entire school career wouldn't have that job. Like if they paid, if it paid as well as, you know, being an investment banker, you'd have much smarter teachers, like, <laughs> I, I, which is maybe, which is maybe what they're really saying is let's get smarter people here so that you can actually be better educated. Right. But like the idea that just your current teacher should be getting paid more is so anti the way economic, like, no, no, that guy just won't have a job. I'll be working at fucking Denny's. Yeah. Well, my, my problem is uh, when they talk about teachers having two jobs and it's like, when you're working a second job and you're three months off, that doesn't count as you having yeah. two jobs. I mean, they work three-fourths <laughs> of the year already, and those days are pretty short in and of themselves. So, yeah, 100% true on that. Yeah, that's pretty. And also, it, 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 how stressful is knowing that you have to show up tomorrow to you know teach history and grade a history test? It's not like... You know, right. I, it's not like the company's going bankrupt if you're not making sales kind of jobs. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, no. I don't have that much sympathy for those people. All right. Anyways, getting back to the topic at hand, which is uh, I do want to get into global warming a little bit. Um, years ago, I mean, just because it's so covered in the news, the risk of global warming, I would have just assumed, hey, this is a big problem. Then I was listening to a random episode of uh, Econ Talk. This must go back four or five years. And two scientists were having a debate about it. And they started having a conversation about the actual forecasting models when my personal bullshit radar just went off. It seemed to me like the guy who was uh, saying that global warming was not an issue completely won that debate, totally changed my opinion on this. Uh, but over the last couple of years, I haven't done that much reading or research. I'm not that on top of this issue. So I'd love to just kind of take it from scratch and get some better information on it. Um, so let's just, as a starting point, I'd love to hear what your guys' personal opinion is like, what's your takeaway? Let's just start from there. If you were telling me, hey, here's what global warming is or isn't, what's kind of your, you know, what, what, what is the party line for the Heartland Institute or just what's your personal take on what global warming is or isn't? Well, I mean, there's there's a it's such a big topic that there's a lot of different angles that you can kind of approach it at. Um, I know that like some of our more academics are, are, are people that are like 
the the Willie Soons, you know, yeah. the the physicists that we have that talk about uh, this this type of stuff at our international. Um, International conference on climate change. conferences on climate change. They'll go with like the hard science, right? They'll they'll talk about like measuring um, uh, the the devices or whatever that they measure the temperatures on land and how they're manipulated because of the amount of blah 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 blah. Right? It gets really wonky and in the weeds. Uh, I take a lot further out approach. I, I kind of leave the science to be debated by the scientists. Um, I just kind of look at what the actual results are, right? So you can see these charts, and pretty much every Heartland website or affiliated website will have the one chart, which shows over the last 30 years all of the projections of what uh, the temperature raising is going to be, you know, if we, if we continue to let CO2 emissions uh, go unabated. And they just like, you know, astronomical projections. Um, and then compared to like what the actual readings are, are like substantially lower than that. So it's just like, you know, at the base level, the what they're scaring us into thinking that we're going to be, you know, five degrees warmer in 100 years or something. What we actually can see is that it's not nearly as, as uh, rapid of a growth like that. So what they're trying to talk about this being like catastrophic it, it's nowhere close to being catastrophic, and especially just hitting them on that ninety-seven percent claim that science, or that not that scientists, the policymakers make. You're frequently told that every smart person out there completely agrees that global warming is primarily anthropogenic and catastrophic. But when you really break down those kinds of claims and look at what experts are saying, there's no consensus in any way. And I've always found that focusing on what scientists agree on, such as like there has been modest warming, is true. But really hitting them on like modest warming doesn't indicate that climate policy X is good for society. Mm -hmm. They ignore the positives of fossil fuels and all of those regards and really just talk about catastrophic impacts. So let's start with that because I even had when uh, when uh, that the, the Greta Van Depressing was talking at the UN, yeah. I was riding on my bicycle <laughs> and some pretty lady, probably like mid 50s, pulls up next to me and she's got the, the biggest grin you ever saw on your face just because she's like, I don't know this lady. She just turns to me. She just got so much good energy. She can't not turn over and talk to the person next to her. And she figures I'm on my bicycle. So I'm probably one of these environmentalist idiots. And she goes, Hey, did you see that kid at the UN? Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, it, she's finally getting the message out there. And I was like, all right, lady, you know, I wasn't going to pick a fight with her one stoplight. I was next to her for, I wasn't going to be like, all right, well let's get some nuclear fuel. But what has happened over the last, I guess, let's go with 10 or 15 years that like people's liberal douche cred, it goes through the roof if they're, hey, we got to deal with this global warming thing. And if you bring it up, a lot of times even reasonable people will just be like, hey, come on, asshole. Every single scientist agrees on this. Why are you taking the talking points of ExxonMobil and the fossil? Like it's such kind of a uh, like a written in stone. Like this was on the Ten Commandments from God. Hey, there is global warming and scientists agree on it. So how is that just not factually true? How has that been something that's just been so insanely distorted that your common individual just kind of takes as fact, hey, there's this problem of global warming? Well, let me uh, – so, so you know, you're an interviewer, right? You do this podcast. Uh, you know one of the rules there uh, for interviewees where they get to answer the question in any way they want regardless of what the question is. So I'm going to take that liberty right now <laughs> <Okay>. and, <laughs> and, and take us back further than 10 years, right? So – this idea of like environmentalism, right? So, I mean, obviously there's uh, been talk about it forever, right? I'm not discounting it and saying that it's something that's some something new, but uh, this really actually stems this, this kind of radical environmentalism really stems from like decades ago. So after like World War II, uh, there was this rebound in the economy. Everyone was doing good. Uh, the economy was booming. Middle class was growing. Everyone's individual wealth was, was going up. And the people that were kind of preaching the Marxism and, and socialism and how capitalism is destroying people and exploiting people and uh, making poverty, like those ideas were evaporating. So that, I've got this quote from uh, Marxist historian Eric Hausbaum, who said that all the problems which haunted capitalism appear to dissolve and disappear. So basically, you know, they couldn't convince people that capitalism was causing poverty anymore. So they had to come up with a new boogeyman for capitalism, which is the idea that capitalism was causing uh, was causing environmental harm. So that was their kind of their new attack on capitalism. And 
energy is the master resource. Every industry in the entire United States at the foundational level is energy, right? So if you really wanted to kind of cut the the, the growth of, uh, of a country or an economy, you have to go after that kind of that cornerstone, which is energy. So the, the roots of this idea kind of go back all the way to then. And um, there's actually a, like a lot of quotes. One of the first articles that I wrote here at the Heartland Institute was titled, Why Environmentalists Would Eventually Hate Renewable Energy. And this was based off the idea, um, like... 50 years ago, there was a study that suggested that we are right around the corner from discovering cold fusion. This idea that we would have unlimited, clean, renewable energy, and it would be super cheap, and it would be fantastic. The environmentalists came out and were horrified about this. There was a quote um, from our favorite crazy, uh, what is his name, Paul Ehrlich, who Mm -hmm. said that the idea of free energy would be like giving an idiot child a machine gun. Because he knew that if there was no constraints on energy, there would be no constraints on economic growth. We would have unlimited potential to grow and develop and population soaring or whatever. That scares the environmentalists to death. So, like, the roots of this idea go back way further than just kind of like the current kind of modern day talk about this stuff. And... uh so that's my kind of mini rant, and I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> but just to build off that, to build off that a small bit, uh, to kind of accent your point, in the 1970s, it wasn't global warming that they talked about. It was global cooling right. and how we needed to centrally plan the energy sector to fight this giant environmental boogeyman. So like you're saying, I mean, they, they have used this environmental issue to attack capitalism from numerous ways, and just the current iteration is climate change. It was first global warming back in the early 2000s, but then that slowed down, so they had to say, oh, climate change is now the issue. So it, it, just to kind of take it back then, so the people in this post-World War II environment, when capitalism is taking off, and they realize, hey, we've got we to gotta fight this capitalism thing, otherwise it's just going to keep growing – who are those people? Like, can you point to like specific individuals or specific groups that? Because it just—I I mean, it, it could just be how indoctrined I am with libertarian thought that when you say, "Hey, there's these people out there that just are afraid of economic growth," um, or like what you were saying with the free energy—that there was actually an individual goes, "Oh, that's going to be a problem." Yeah. It, it just seems so. It, it almost sounds like we're describing a villain in a movie who's anti-humans. And he's like, oh, my God, the human race is actually going to be incredibly successful. I've got to figure out a way to put the, the brakes on this. Um, so to me, it almost just sounds like, wait, they can't be people that are that stupid or that are that evil. So can you just tell us a little bit more about like who those individuals are, where they come? Like, you know, any, any information would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, so we're, we're talking about, you know, at the, the post-World War II, the kind of the, the time after that, right, uh, broadly speaking. So. Back then, uh, the the academics of the time they were infatuated with the idea of socialism, or at least uh, you know I don't want to talk too broad strokes here, but uh, there was a wing of people of academics that thought that socialism was the way to go. When the Soviet Union started kind of doing their thing, uh, they thought that this was going to be the future, right? So you've got these books that are called uh, Political Pilgrim, I think is the one that's kind of like the one that's referenced all the time, where it's just basically catalogs. Different academics, whether they're um, professors or different kind of political scholars or whatever, going to the Soviet Union, uh, uh, reveling over the things that they were doing over there and coming back and talking about how they've got it right over there in the Soviet Union. We need central control. We need a break from this idea of capitalism that's exploiting people. And uh, we got to replicate their model. So this is kind of the field, I guess, that I'm talking in here. So I I mentioned specifically that Marxist historian Eric Homsbaum. But you've got quotes throughout kind of history talking about this. There was one that was – there was one – I don't have the name here written down. But it was basically talking about like cheap, abundant energy would lock us into an economic model of constant growth. So that sounds fine to me. Yeah, what's the problem there? <laughs> but to a socialist, the or, or an environmentalist specifically, this idea that we're going to be just uh, digging out every rare earth material out of the ground and getting rid of all of our resources because of this idea of an unsustainable capitalism system. So there was a huge wing of people that believed in this type of stuff. You know, they they didn't want capitalism to run amok. We need to centrally. Uh, controlled, centrally uh, planned economy. 
Okay. And then I guess before we kind of bring it back to modern day and see how I guess they're still running with that, um, we might as well take a moment and just kind of debunk this idea of that we're running out of uh, um, we're running out of fossil fuels or we're going to pull everything out of the ground or that if there are too many human beings here, we have an issue of overpopulation. Um, so just and I'm sure you guys will have uh, talking points on both of these. But firstly, when it comes to the overpopulation, uh, the, the threat of overpopulation, I just recently read in the Bitcoin standard, he put forward a very interesting argument against that which was essentially who knows how many human beings we need to create before you get the one genius who knows how to like move us forward a thousand years from like a technological perspective or the guy who's going to just invent that box that we get into and then you step out and every disease is just cured. Like Mm. there's freak geniuses and it's almost a numbers game of how many people do we need to um, have born that will be able to just solve like who knows who's going to solve how to get us to Mars. Who's going to be that genius who just goes, Oh, here, I got a way to get half the population onto this other planet. So we're not running out of space. Um, and so it, it's almost like this weird outlook where we see human beings as being, uh, basically like a blight that there's going to be too many of us when the reality is the more of us that are here, just kind of from a numbers perspective, um, we all kind of benefit because we're going to get, we need to get to that freak genius. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. In, uh, I, I, when it comes to overpopulation, um, I don't know what the ideal population is, and I don't want to. I don't even think anybody would possibly have a grasp on that concept of what the ideal population is. Yeah, and when people talk about overpopulation, that probably scares me more than I'm trying to check in my brain. Pretty much anything, because that's like... What does the, that mean? Right. Well, that's like the core thing as a human being, right? Like, we're, we're like hardwired. At that point. What's that? You're, you're like being as evil as Thanos. When someone steps <laughs> up and goes, hey, there's overpopulation, it's like, well, then what are you, what are you proposing here? Yeah. What's next? Yeah. What's the policy but, related to yeah. it? We are hardwired yeah. as a species to replicate uh, and the idea that we're going to have the it's government come in and like tell us when and where we can do that... That scares the living daylights out of me, especially because of like what considerations are going to take into account who can procreate and who can't, and uh, you know what level of society can and can't. Scares the living daylights out of if me. If government chooses someone pretty, you know, hot for me to procreate with, I'm actually totally <laughs> fine with this happening. But yeah, I'm I might just be able it to get on board with the centralized uh, authority for who gets to fuck who. Yeah, I can, get, I someone, can get, down get someone it. high up in the office to like you. Boom! This is the this is the life. But then like, I think that's exactly the, the issue with socialism is that idiots like us think, well, if the centralized authority comes in, I bet I'll be able to d- d- rig that game oh, yeah. better than the free market game. <laughs> and chances are you and I. Sorry, did I lose you guys? Yeah, there for a sec? yeah, we lost you. Oh, okay. Well, don't worry. I was just talking about a centralized authority that was going to no. force us to fuck out. To be honest, I was liking this conversation. Well, it, it, you're, that response is actually like a, a perfect explanation of, of what you're saying there, though, because it's like, you know, while you, Andy, are working here at a libertarian think tank, and you probably have your hands far from the controls of any type of government uh, yeah. uh, coercion or whatever, there are certainly people in uh, in that control room that are thinking the same way. So, yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the, the possibilities of abuse of a system like that are, are unbelievable. But, uh, but um, Okay, and but, then the other thing that's just interesting to kind of um, take note of in that, especially as we're having a conversation about environmentalism, is you can kind of look back, there's a lot of really interesting examples of when people thought we were going to run out of resources, and they've just been completely wrong. I think one of the most famous examples, and I I should have looked this up beforehand, but I think there was uh, some bet that happened between two scientists about when we were going to, it was either oil or gold, Um, but you guys are going to be able to better point the specifics, but there's been a lot of alarmism of, hey, we're going to run out of X resource, and every time that they've made that claim, it's just been completely not true so why don't we talk to that for a second yeah i mean uh andy actually did a uh, a series of videos here at the heartland institute that were kind of showing like these failed predictions over the past 50 or yeah. so years uh so there's some specific ones in there but like you know some that just kind of come to mind is a uh, food shortage so i already kind of mentioned our favorite uh, uh chicken little uh, i gotta accent this point when you're done paul ehrlich he's talking about uh food shortages that we're gonna like run out of food by like the 80s and there's gonna be mass starvation obviously that didn't happen 
Uh, and then the other kind of shining example, and I'll let Andy's biting at the chomp to get in here, but uh, peak oil, right? So yeah. like during the 70s, they thought they were going to run out of oil. Um, we are never going to run out of these things. There are price signals. There, there are certain like patches of oil. Let's stick with oil that are um, economically infeasible to drill to right now, right? But if the prices, if there's a shortage of oil and the prices go up, then all of a sudden those send price signals to these developers that say, okay, now it's economically feasible to drill into this area to get this oil, or we could talk about fracking or whatever. So, so I mean, that idea that we're just going to run out is never going to happen. What would really happen is that the price levels of these things, as they get more rare, would grow steadily. And then we would see a different, um, like, swapping out or substitution. So an another example, and I might be flip-flopping these, is the idea of, like, the tin can. So, like, making cans out of tin uh, made sense economically. But then as the price of tin went up, then uh, the, the, the can makers said, like, oh, you know what? It would be way better to use aluminum. So now tin is only used for the places where it needs to be used. So this idea that we're going to run out of resources is lunacy. Yeah, I've never believed that you should direct, you should try to essentially plan an economy in any way because of a limited resource, which is exactly what you're saying. If we do run low on oil, prices will rise, thus making it economically feasible for new yeah. sources of energy to come right. in. But to move on with the point you were making about food shortages. So... For those that don't know out there, CO2 has a fertilizing effect. The more CO2 in the atmosphere, generally the better crop yields are around sure. the world. So the alarmists have moved on from the idea that we're going to run out of food due to climate change. And the point that they make now is that we actually have too much food. There's not enough nutrients in the soil. We're getting food that doesn't have enough nutrients, which is <laughs> a ludicrous, ludicrous claim in and of itself. Because if you imagine someone that's starving in Africa and you know you get them a a bit of cabbage. Do you think they're wondering about the micronutrients in there? Or do you think they're wondering about the caloric intake of their next meal? So they have literally moved on to the, we don't have enough micronutrients in our crops, which is just hilarious. Okay. So just to kind of go back to, uh, I, I'm a little bit linear in my thinking. So our starting point here was, we just wanted to say, Hey, what do we really see? How did this come about that everyone believes that there's a global warming and what you've showed to us is that even as early as post-World War II, uh, people that are looking to have centralized government or socialism and want capitalism to fail um, started with this storyline of, hey, um, it, there's a risk to capitalism. And the risk to capitalism is that it's at odds with the environment. Right. And so their most recent story in terms of how they can pin capitalism against the environment is to say, hey, we've got this risk of global warming. And so unless the government steps in and kind of starts policing the way that we uh, in other words, unless we take a step back from capitalism and take a different approach here, which is going to, um, I guess, cap carbon, then at least we can coexist with the environment. So my question, though, would be in modern times, how were they so successful in terms of building this story of like, you know, most people I meet, they're not socialists, they're not socialists, or at least they don't think that they're socialists. So somebody's kind of winning the media war here that if you talk to, you know, if I walk in the street and I talk to someone and say, I don't believe in global warming, they think I'm an asshole. You know what I mean? Somebody's <laughs> right. they've somehow won that, that the war on people's minds that your average person thinks that there's a risk of global warming. Um, so I, I guess how are the socialists so successful in terms of that piece of propaganda in terms of pinning capitalism, you know, against the environment? How, how do they be? How, like, what did they do that they were able to build this story? Yeah. Uh, well, what you're seeing is a decades long just uh, campaign to, to run with these ideas. Um, and the media, the, the corporate media is complicit in this. Um, politicians that can use this as an excuse to kind of push for the policies that they want, run with this. Um, you know, academics that think that they're fighting against the big oil barons of the, you know, the 19th century or whatever are running with this. So you've got like all of the different industries that are all kind of pushing this for the goal of uh, kind of getting their, you know, pushing it for their ends, right? Yeah. The, the means for the ends. Um, real quick, though, I, I do want to kind of address that idea that capitalism is at odds with the environment, right? So. There's this idea, uh, it's a very interesting graph called the Kuznets Curve, 
where it basically shows that like once capitalism is like launched, whether it's in like a third world country or something like that, you'll see this massive economic growth and it will be at the expense of the environment because these people want to uh, be able to eat versus have a clean park. Right, it's evil people. <laughs> but then, once it reaches uh, the country reaches a certain level of GDP, they start to uh, prioritize the their environment for numerous different reasons. You don't want to be living in filth, and you want to leave a better place for your kids or the next generation. So you start to prioritize this idea of taking care of your environment. So what you'll see, what this curve will show you, is that once you surpass a certain level of GDP per capita, that a society actually starts taking control. Uh, are, are, are taking uh, a little bit more interest. interest in protecting the environment. Um, and also, you can afford to. It's kind of like if, if you're starving and you need food, or let's say you can't heat your home and you're freezing cold, so you might chop down a tree, which isn't the best, I guess, solution for the environment, or maybe not even for the best of your lungs, and start heating up your home with the, with, with the heated tree. Um, if all of a sudden somebody comes in and they give you gas heat, you might have free time on your hands when you think, hey, I should plant some trees out there. Right. Um, so it's the same thing almost from a GDP perspective. If there's a certain level of comfort that everyone has, Precise. they have a little bit more free time to start thinking, hey, what would be the smart forward looking? Like you can't really make smart and forward looking decisions um, when you don't have food on your plate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and just in what's interesting, I heard uh, you guys ever read any uh, any stuff by Scott Adams. He was the guy who made Dilbert, Dilbert and yeah. now he's kind of turned into a. Uh, you know, like me, a pseudo intellectual who just kind of rants on shit. Um, <laughs> I follow his Twitter some, but I haven't read much from him. I heard him say once, which I thought was really interesting, that more often than not, and he said he experiences himself, is that when he became well off, he starts thinking about being charitable and how he can help other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I bet that, like what you described, there being a curve of once society reaches a certain GDP, they start thinking, well, what can we do to protect the environment? Right. I think that's also almost like natural to human nature that once people have a certain, not everyone, but once they really have a lot of wealth, they actually do want to start giving back. Um, so, you know what I'm It's almost yeah. more just a part of human nature that when you reach a certain level of comfort, you do start thinking, hey, how do I help out other people or make forward-looking decisions, yeah. um, which is a, a fascinating reason for why we don't need government to either tax us or to step in and handle the environment, because if capitalism were to get us to that point where everyone has what they need, um, you, we, we'd, we'd be a little bit more utopian by nature. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a very good point, that the idea of applying the Kuznets curve to other things it, might be worth me exploring, so I'll take the note of that. Um, I, I did I mention Naomi Klein yet? Uh, because no. I think that she and some of these kind of modern day politicians, uh, I think, have really showed their hand of what they're actually using the kind of this this climate change scare uh, for. So Naomi Klein, she is a big opponent of the Heartland Institute. Uh, she does not like us. <laughs> I think she's wrote a book specifically about us. Wait, that's actually cool. Merchants of Doubt, I think. Maybe nice. I'm confusing two people. But um, she, she said that real climate solutions are ones that steer power and control to the community level, whether through community-controlled renewable energy, Ooh. agriculture, transit, right? So it's basically... <laughs> She's saying centrally plan it so the community has more control because yeah. everything I've ever learned about socialism generally means the community and the people of a community are going to have less control. So yeah. I had to jump in. Right, right. So so her book, This Changes Everything, which came out like five years ago, I want to say, uh, she basically said that climate – no, specifically, I have the quote here. It says, climate change supercharges the pre-existing case for virtually every progressive demand on the books, binding them into co – into a coherent agenda based on a clear scientific imperative. So it's basically saying that we can use climate change as an excuse to get everything on our uh, progressive, liberal, socialist wish list. And then this was proven, proven by the fact of uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in her Green New Deal, and we can get into that specifically if you want, but basically it is... Uh, everything that the, the liberal eco-left wants, including the elimination of all fossil fuels, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, retrofitting every house and building in the United States to be uh, environmentally friendly, 
Um, but then it also includes stuff like universal health care and job guarantees and free college and uh, a ton of other things. Everything. So it's like, you know, at, we were kind of left to speculate when this originally was proposed, the Green New Deal, to say, like, why would they spend a dollar on any of these social programs if the fate of the world is at stake, Right. Like, if, if you were really afraid that the world was going to end in 12 years because of climate change, why would you spend a dollar uh, sp- uh, on universal health care? Why would you spend a minute trying to convince opponents of this idea on why we should adopt a jobs guarantee? So we were left to speculate, not for long, because Ocasio-Cortez's uh, like campaign manager came out like several months afterwards and said, like, oh... Uh, there's like almost a there's like a direct quote. I don't have it with me, but it was saying like, "Oh, were you looking at the Green New Deal as an environment thing? Because we were looking at it as a completely overhaul society thing." Yeah. So it's like that's that's proof right there to me that they are using this this climate change scare as a tool to overhaul society and and make it in their own image and and how they could put themselves in a position to run society as they see fit. The head of the IPCC, the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the uh, organization that works through the UN that dictates much of the the climate policy governments around the world use, the head of it, and I want to say 2007, and I don't have the, the quote in front of me, literally said that climate change has become a way to redistribute resources from first world nations to third world nations. <laughs> and that they're right. using that as their way of essentially planning a global economy. Yeah. So it absolutely is. AOC did it. The head of the IPCC admits it. This isn't just about the climate. It's about collective control. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that um, their marketing strategy kind of works. And I'm going to take the example. I remember right after the Green New Deal thing happened, um, I was sitting like family meal on a Sunday. My aunt was there and my aunt's a smart, a smart lady. Like I'm, uh, she doesn't work at a hedge fund, but she's like real estate. You know, she's a smart lady. She's got an analytical mind. And she said something like pro the green new deal. And I just, I was like, well, did you look at, did you like you read it all? She goes, not really. I was like, you know, it includes flattening buildings, getting rid of airplanes, um, making like if you start and she goes, well, you know what? I didn't really even care about the weeds. I just feel like someone needs to do something about global warming. So I'm happy that she's stepping up and putting forward a plan. And my aunt's a very smart lady. And that's exactly the loose affiliations of most people that aren't following politics is they go, okay, every single day I hear about global warming and that seems to be some sort of a threat. And they almost conflate it with the risk of debt in this country. We all understand like we can't spend the way that we do, but it just kind of gets ignored by politicians. And I think people think the global warming is the same kind of a risk where, hey, there's this horrible thing and we're all just kind of looking the other way. We're ignoring it because, well, we don't really want to deal with it. It's kind of like the way some of us are unhealthy or we smoke. We're just kind of in denial about the fact that there's going to be consequences. And then they hear someone step forward and they go, well, I'm actually going to be the one to deal with it. And they're afraid of the risk. So they go, okay, I like that she's going to deal with it. Um, And it's a problem because none of the actual facts are being explored, which is, hey, do all scientists actually agree on global warming? Is this a real risk? If it is a real risk, is this kind of a reduction going to help us? It's like none of the crucial key elements of the questions that you have to ask and answer are even being addressed. And that's by smart people, which is what is really scary about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways to respond to that type of thing. If you've got somebody that's like really uh, petrified of the the threat of CO2 in the atmosphere resulting in some type of apocalyptic hellscape 100 years in the future, uh, my technique would to shift them towards a guy that I pitch all the time, and he's never been on the podcast. I think I brought him up last time we talked, but Michael Schellenberger. Who comes from the <laughs> who comes from the organization Environmental Progress, and basically his background was that he is one of these people that are very concerned about climate change and wants to do something about it. I think he was instrumental in implementing some of the uh, policies during the Obama administration, early on in the Obama administration, and uh, you know, like he's very concerned about this potential threat. Um, but he recognizes that these solutions, whether it's the Green New Deal or just the idea of like uh, energy renewable energy mandates uh, for wind and solar, are are terrible and are going to do nothing. 
and that they have an ulterior agenda for pushing things like this, and how if you are really serious about trying to tackle CO2 uh, emissions in, worldwide, then we should really pursue a nuclear energy policy. And, you know, for these people... Uh, that uh, that like say that we need to overhaul the economy and do all of these things that are going to hurt people. They're going to hurt like current day people, and they're not even giving room for nuclear power. I think really reveals uh, their true agenda. And, and the best example of this, and I think I referenced this last time that we talked, but I have the direct quote here. This is from the Sierra Club, right? So they're an organization that's like protecting the environment is paramount for them. Uh, in, if you were to go to their website, and they probably changed it, but I screenshotted it a long time ago, <laughs> just in case they changed it. But underneath the section for nuclear power, it says the Sierra Club opposes the licensing, construction, and operation of new nuclear reactors pending adequate national and global policies to curb energy overuse. What? And unnecessary economic growth. What? Have you ever heard of those two items? I want to hear them directly make the argument why that's bad. (laughs) I mean, they can make the claim. I've never heard the argument. Energy overuse and unnecessary economic growth. Where was that again? That's Sierra Club. Uh, we we actually have it uh, turned into a little graphic on our uh, that website that I mentioned before. Crazy things liberals say, uh, but it, it should probably still be on their website. I can't imagine that they took it down just because some low life like me found it. But uh, yeah, Sierra Club as a direct okay, quote from their website. Just to give further evidence to what you're saying, which is essentially, hey, let's acknowledge that this whole global warming thing, it's people who are trying to get control over resources and that they actually think that economic growth is bad for humanity. Um, This is like two months ago, or maybe a month ago, the global warming with uh, Greta Van, uh, I don't know what her actual last name is, the the, the lady from The Exorcist. Um, (laughs) When she was... (laughs) When she was talking at uh, uh, the UN, it kind of came up on uh, part of the problem, and Bob Murphy sent me a couple articles that he recently wrote on this. Um, And what Bob Murphy was breaking down, which was really interesting, is that even if you buy into the idea that there is global warming and that um, it it is man-made and that there's a risk to it, so the numbers that you'd be working off, the best guy in the field was Obama's person who won the Nobel Peace Prize, And the U.N. isn't even going with his figures. They're going with figures that are like three times what he said the risk factor is, um, which would seem to suggest more of what you're kind of saying is that there's actually people here who are against economic productivity. Um, But just to kind of take it back, uh, I'd like to get a little bit more of the information. So one of the arguments we said at the beginning of this is that when people say, hey, most scientists agree on this, that's not true. What can you tell me to kind of back that up so that, you know, myself and the other people that listen to this, when someone next tells them, hey, most scientists agree on this, like what, what kind of evidence can we have to be able to go, hey, that's like unequivocally false? Yeah, I've got my kind of uh, response that I always kind of keep in my my holster here. But I know Andy specifically was researching this prior to this uh, recording here. So I'm going to let him take it. All right. So the claim that you're talking about here is generally that 97% of scientists agree that climate change is man-made and catastrophic. And that that claim is, first off, heavily debunked. And I'm going to go through level by level what essentially it means. So part one is that the Earth has been warming recently. Which is true. There is a scientific consensus that in the early 21st century, there was modest warming. The second part of that is that man-made CO2 has contributed to that warming, which is also true. So through these first two levels, there is a scientific consensus that that these are true statements. Where this uh, claim starts to fall apart is the increasing depths of it. So then climate feedbacks intensify the initial man-made CO2 warming. There is a consensus that that's true, but where scientists disagree heavily is what the magnitude of this feedback is. Is it as strong as the IPCC says, where every small bit of CO2 greatly magnifies the temperature? Or is it something where as we increase CO2, it's a logarithmic relationship where actually temperature change uh, becomes less and less evident, which is generally where the scientists that we work with uh, believe. So continuing then, is the net man-made CO2 going to lead to warming that is significant? Generally, no would be where I come at this. As we continue to put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it may have a modest effect on warming, but it's not going to be a significant effect where we have to globally centrally plan our energy use in the economy. 
So then moving even further with this claim, are the negative impacts from this going to be significant? Again, can we, uh, no. Can we, can we just pause for one second? Because I, yes. I just want to uh, explain one of the things that you've said, um, which is you said everyone agrees that there is some sort of an, um, that there is some sort of uh, basically rising temperatures because of CO2, but they don't understand the magnitude. Exactly. And I just want to kind of, I, I want people to understand what that means. Like, let's say we were in court right now because um, uh, uh, somebody needed facial reconstruction surgery and they said it was because I punched them. So yeah. there's a difference between I punched them to the point that they needed facial reconstruction surgery and I made contact with their face. Like, let's say I flicked them so we can all agree I made contact with their face, but it doesn't mean anything. There's a consensus with the that you contacted with enough their face. force <laughs> that they needed reconstructive surgery. So, like, just understand we're basically saying, yes, there is CO2 and CO2 has an impact. But to say that that means it's a problem doesn't mean anything. It's all about the scale and magnitude, which I think almost even myself, my dumb brain, when you said, oh, I'm like, well, he admitted there's an impact. Well, no, no, no. Without understanding the actual magnitude of it, it could be it could be negligible. It doesn't mean anything, right? And that kind of ties into the that one response that I had that I mentioned that was in my holster, which is like one of these polls that are constantly talked about in the same kind of breath that this ninety seven science ninety seven percent of scientists agree is like based on this poll that like asks two questions: one is is there warming? Two does humans have an impact? So if you have the answer to both of those, they put, they group you into this 97% of, uh, of scientists. I would wager that 97% of the people that work here at the Heartland Institute believe that. I mean, that's true. So, what you're so, saying is a fact. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, it, But then they take that and they apply that that meme, that 97% uh, meme, to everything. So, yeah. Like, like I've been saying, so the first two levels are true. We have been warming and man-made CO2 has contributed to that warming. That is the consensus. What's happening is that there's all these increasing levels after that where they're applying that early consensus to further claims. So continuing, negative impacts, will they be significant of more man-made CO2? No, there's actually many positive impacts. Uh, and then that moves into, are the negative effects of increased man-made CO2 emissions going to outweigh the positive? So essentially, is the modest warming that occurs if we use CO2 going to be better than the increased amount of energy available to society if we continue to burn fossil fuels? And the answer is no. I mean, it, having people that can better adapt to climate issues is, is more valuable than trying to control the climate in and of itself because we can't possibly do it. So this claim then builds into... Is alternative energy feasible? So if they say 97% of scientists agree that man-made CO2 is, is, is catastrophic, they're implying within that claim that we need to move away from it and move into wind and solar, and yet they ignore nuclear, which is the most important energy source out there if you're actually going to go at this from a renewable, non-emitting uh, non uh, energy source. But alternative energy is not currently feasible. So... Finally, it moves into the policy perspective. You'll be told that we need to put a carbon tax on all carbon emissions to actually truly uh, benefit the environment and to stop this runaway global warming, which isn't a real thing. But these, these, these programs may not even be effective. If we move towards all wind and solar energy, we're going to still need to back that up with, with coal or with oil and natural, natural gas. gas. Yeah, because you can't actually just exist on these renewable sources. We don't have the battery capabilities to hold on to the energy. And we need backup fossil fuel fossils, fossil fuel power sources when, when uh, that the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. So the final step is that climate policy X, which we'll call the Green New Deal, is a good idea. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will get on the news and we'll, she'll say that we need the Green New Deal because it's the only way that we can stop this runaway climate change that's going to doom us all. And if you disagree, you get called a denier. You, you don't believe in it, which is meant to uh, elicit Holocaust denier, but either way, they'll call you a denier. And then essentially what they're doing is they're taking all those steps in the middle, which is where the climate feedback they believe is going to be very strong from CO2 when it, when it won't be. Even though the very basic arguments, which is that the earth has been warming and that there is a minor effect from man-made CO2 emissions on that, we all agree on. But what that doesn't mean is that the climate policy, like the, the Green New Deal, right. is going to be effective. It doesn't mean that it's going to be like cost, that we, we can even manage the cost at all. And it doesn't mean that the negative effects of the CO2 we emit into the atmosphere are actually overwhelmingly negative. They're not. There's positive benefits, and we need to use fossil fuel sources. So essentially, all of these claims are just built on multiple postulates that we haven't accepted 
but that they they build into the 97% claim. That's my Okay. So one last thing I kind of want to throw out there, and then I kind of want to, we'll recap the whole conversation of what I think people can really walk away as the rational man's approach to global warming. Um, But I just think one of the things we haven't really mentioned much, and if people want to have a little bit more insight into the discussion on global warmings, is we do have to talk a little bit about the climate modeling. Um, So from what I've seen, uh, in terms of discussing whether or not you can attribute uh, basically temperature changes to human beings um, is that the climate modeling that they have is actually, it's a mixture of flawed or it's just not that good where most of the time when they're making predictions, they turn out to be very overstated. And it also seems to me in the same way that people have said like, Hey, economists have predicted, you know, a lot more depression that have actually happened from what I remember of the little amount of time I spent in economic classes is that they basically run models by taking variables and setting them. And the problem with that is that just not really the way the real world works. Uh, and it seems to me that from, and this is so over my head, but with the climate modeling, there's a little bit of that going on as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the, I guess, major overstatements in terms of the risk of human carbon emissions is kind of flawed models that when I hear the scientists being questioned about, they tend to fold pretty quickly and go, well, we know that there's a risk factor here. Well, your model's wrong. And they'll go, okay, yeah, I know that my model's wrong. Let's understand that there's a risk factor here. And then it goes back to, well, then let's quantify the risk factor. Without knowing the impact of it, this is meaningless. They go, well, I have my model. And it's very circular. Well, you just told me your model's flawed. Yeah, but I know that there's a risk factor here. So you guys would have more insight on that than I would. I just know for the listeners of this who have probably done no research or haven't looked into this that much, it is a crucial part of the conversation in terms of what kind of models these guys are using for making these predictions and just how um, trustworthy are they. Uh, yeah, so this one is probably a question uh, for those uh, the, those scientists of ours that are speaking <laughs> at the ICC conferences or whatever. Uh, but I mean, I mean, I know some of the things generally speaking. So I kind of touched on the one idea, which is like the surface level temperature gauges yeah. uh, across the country, and um, you know, just like the the idea that they're like in these urban centers. These urban centers are growing. There's more. Uh, parking lots and things that kind of uh, absorb heat, which can cause some, uh, you know, a, a non-consistent uh, over the course of time readings for these individual places. There's all these stories of like recalibrating these things to show more warning, uh, more warming. And then uh, Andy mentioned during his little spiel there about the idea of the um, geometric versus algorithmic logarithmic, essentially that increasing CO2 emissions into the atmosphere have a diminishing effect on temperature, which is a theory, right? So the idea is, you know, they're putting all this, they're plotting all this data into this machine and they're spitting out these projections of what the temperature is going to be over the next 15 years. Uh, But if they don't know what Andy was just talking about, what the relation is between heat and CO2 levels, it's a guess, right? So it's like yeah. garbage in, garbage right. it's out. It's almost like, to, to put that into, it, there's a marginal decrease in returns um, in terms of heating the planet with CO2. Exactly. So like an example of that would be if I'm taking steroids, the first time I use steroids, I might be able to double my body mass. But if I double the amount of steroids I'm taking, I might not be able to, you know, the increase in that second dose might be marginal. Right. Or if you're a drug person, the first time you smoke weed, you might get crazy high. If you smoke double the amount of weed, you're not getting doubly high. So it, yeah. it, it's kind of like that just in terms of CO2 that it could be at the current level of CO2 emissions, we're heating X amount. But if we doubled it, you're not going to see a double amount of heating. Yeah. Can exactly. I just say that I absolutely love and appreciate your analogies? Yep. <laughs> let me, let me <laughs> we're talking about CO2 and getting high. <laughs> let me just say that right off the bat. Yeah. The punching in the face and uh, getting the reconstructive surgery, I, I don't think anything I've ever said tops that. But <laughs> yeah, but you know, like I was kind of saying at the at the front end of this conversation was you know, you've got the science, you've got the physicists that, that are out there talking about the measurement med- uh, readings and uh, all of this different stuff. And, like, to me, that's all secondary. I know this is all kind of built on that, but, like, that's for me to le- leave the, for the scientists. Like, what I know is that the solutions that they're proposing are terrible. They're going to be absolutely destructive. They're going to be economically disastrous and environmentally toxic. So we can get into that idea of uh, why wind and solar sucks and why it's actually bad for the environment if you want. 
But I also uh, know that the solutions aren't going to do anything to curb CO2 levels. Mm-hmm. We can completely overhaul. We could do everything down to the letter of the law if we were to pass the Green New Deal, and it would do absolutely nothing to to reverse or stifle any type of potential warming in the future. And the reason for that is the United States it only contributes like 15% of CO2 emissions worldwide. China alone is double that. They're 30%. And they don't have Ocasio-Cortez's in there. They're trying to uh, get them to reduce their CO2 levels. They are uh, building more and more fossil fuel coal-burning plants every day. Yeah. Uh, and, and no sign of stopping at all, right? So we could totally cut off our legs to potentially uh, prevent us from getting 0.01% of warming in the future, while simultaneously China is laughing at us and, uh, <laughs> and, and well, you know, creating more and more CO2. So, yeah. I want to build off that because I, I think part of the problem with that argument is it becomes a little bit – if you're looking at this more like from a moral standpoint, you might go – well, it's not it's not good of us to ruin the environment just because somebody else is. So uh, the other perspective I just want to add to it is what are the like, in your opinion, let's say we, we, we stay the course. You know, we continue to burn fossil fuels. There's really no reason to freak out about it. Um, it's unclear if we are contributing to a warming environment and any of the efforts that they say they're going to make are going to be so economically disastrous It really isn't a very good return on investment. Mm -hmm. My question for you is if we just completely stay the course, we ignore – it's not even ignore. It sounds like there isn't much of a risk of from global warming at the moment. Um, What are the chances scientists just figure out a solution? Like I'm a firm believer that there's smart people out there and when things – you know, uh, it's kind of – what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. That like if things really go to shit – I don't even know what they're exploring right now in terms of – maybe pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. I, I like, I don't really even know what exists by way of trying to answer that problem. Uh, but it, it doesn't seem like there's even a lot of talk about the fact of, Hey, there's some smart people. They're working on a solution here. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of different ways to approach that, uh, as well. So one of them is the idea that we know what the ideal temperature is, right? So there's a lot of people that'll try to talk about, uh, how we need, uh, that, that any additional warming is bad. There's a lot of evidence that shows that uh, there's actually some benefits that come to uh, with a, a moderate warming. So Andy already mentions the idea of higher crop yields or earlier. There's a greening of the earth. So this idea that we know what the ideal temperature is and that we're getting away from that, I think, is a little egotistical. But Just quickly, just jump in. Temperatures have been higher than they are today for much of the Earth's history, too. They're, from, a, from a total Earth historical perspective, temperatures are relatively low modern day. Um, but uh, kind of going back to the idea that like we have to do something. So there's this quote by Bill Nye, the science guy, mm. who is obviously the biggest expert in the field of everything that relates to science. But he's a science. Guy. There was a quote from him that I had seen, I don't know, a couple of years ago or whatever, where he was talking about uh, we don't know what the solution is to fix global warming, but his analogy was that we are in a car racing towards a cliff. And that all we have, you know, the first thing we have to do is hit the brakes, right? So I was thinking about that analogy. It's terrible. Because I, well, my, if if I could just tweak it, I was thinking of the idea of like, well, he is thinking that we're in a car. I'm thinking that we're in an airplane. So we're in an airplane going down this runway and there's a cliff at the end. I say punch it so that we can take off when we get to the end of the, the runway. I'm an optimist when it comes to this type of stuff. When I think about the future, I'm thinking of space colonies. I'm thinking about free energy. I'm thinking about cold fusion. This idea that we're like burning rocks that we find in the ground, I think is just like this idea that's going to be like looked at as goofy, you know, 100 years in the future. So I am an optimist when it comes to these things. I think that government, though, gets in the way of this type 100%. of stuff. So uh, nuclear power, for example, um, we are so afraid as a society about nuclear power, uh, even though there's only been like a couple of incidents that have resulted in, relatively speaking, minor problems. Um, and the idea that we're like so afraid of it, even though these countries that uh, liberals will point to as like these bastions of liberalism, like uh, France and Sweden, they get the majority of their power from nuclear power. 
Um, the idea that we're going to like turn our eye towards this, where it's like the energy source that has the greatest potential of uh, innovation and the idea of like small nuclear reactors that have no threat of a meltdown or anything like that. I just think that we're going to grow beyond these problems that we perceive in our current day. And we're going to look back at it as like, I don't even know why we're fretting about that. And one of the examples is like um, deforestation. You know, when we're talking about deforestation when I was like a kid and they were like scaring me in an elementary school. Dumbest argument ever. It's like the idea that I could have like all of the world's literature on a computer with no paper in sight, I think is like unfathomable to these people. Plus, I mean, the idea that deforestation will occur. So we need more paper. All that does is leads to a profit motive to plant more trees. I mean, Uh, even without the invention of a computer, I think that was a ridiculous argument. Yeah, or or all of the different threats that, uh, that we were talking about with like those failed climate uh, catastrophe predictions over the past 50 years you know like we thought we were going to be radiated to death because of the hole in the ozone layer where did that go you know so uh, this idea that like if we stay the course we're dead we're all dead i think is just uh negative nancy (laughs) i think that we as a society are way better than that idea and uh yeah these post-apocalyptic dystopian futures that are depicted in all of our pop culture i think is all scaremongering and what we're actually going to see is what we have seen if you're back in the 70s thinking that we're going to run out of food and starve to death if you were to show them a picture of today and andy uh brought in an entire uh uh, breakfast uh to (laughs) to this recording uh is proof that we're nowhere near that and i think that these current day scaremongering about the future is going to be look just as ridiculous when we're looking back at it in 50 years love it all right thank you guys so much for coming on this was a a ton of insight into what we hear about in the news almost daily and uh we hear people panic about and we don't get a lot of the full picture or deeper insight so really appreciate you guys were able to come on to the show and give us some insight here thank you very much yeah thanks for having us